Okay. Welcome to NPR, where we're talking today about Vice President Kamala Harris. <laughs> With Connor Barnes as Ira Glass. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway? My name is Julie. My name is Connor. And we are grad students here at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, I work in soil microbial ecology. Connor? I work in law and ecology. Yep. And it's great to have you all back on the podcast. Yeah, and this week we are going to be discussing... Complex adaptive systems. <laughs> Say that ten times fast, Julie. They're about as complex as the name might suggest. <laughs> so I would say this is probably not my area of expertise. Don't know how you feel about it, Connor. So we were going to do our best to give a concise and straightforward, you know, good, intro. Yeah. Good background primer on complex adaptive systems and how they fit into the topic of resilience and resilience theory. Absolutely. All right. So just a roadmap for this episode. Connor is going to do the concept introduction, you know, give us some key terms and you know, why do we care about this whatsoever? I'm going to give a foundational paper, so just a little bit of an older paper that uh, lays out some of the groundwork for this field. And then Connor is going to give us a modern paper, um, maybe some application. And then finally, we'll have Resilience in the News, where we both show a news article uh, that in some way to us talked about resilience or alternative stable states or maybe even complex adaptive systems. So... Thanks for being here, and let's get going. Woo -woo. <laughs> okay, so just like the roadmap said, I will be doing the concept introduction today. So we're talking about complex adaptive systems, and what does that mean? There's a lot to break down there, right? Mm -hmm. First off, a system, Julie, you know, we usually define a system as uh, some kind of a whole made up of different interacting components whether at the same scale or at multiple scales. We've talked in the past about scale and heterogeneity, of course, and how we can look at the scale of an ant, for example, or we can look at the scale of a tree, or we can look at the scale of an entire landscape or a planet or what have you, right? There's multiple scales going on, as well as multiple points uh, in, in time. And we can look at scale that way too. So we can look at it physically as well as temporally. For the other parts in complex adaptive system, complex and adaptive, that's where things get a bit more nuanced. So when we say complex, we do not mean complicated. Mm -hmm. Think of a, I don't know, a dishwasher or an iPhone or a piece of software that can get really complicated, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that those systems are complex systems. A piece of software may have very complicated code, but there are certain requirements in order to be a complex system. Yeah. Com oh, no, sorry. Go on. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say there's been a whole field that's grown up around this term called complexity and complexity science as well. So this has, um, much like resilience, the normal English definition and the sort of field-specific definition here. So that's sort of another place it, it deviates from complicated. Oh, absolutely. These words are narrowly defined in their particular field, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to 
looking in the the general lingo of pop culture, right. the general populace. So in the field of complexity and complex adaptive systems, a complex system is one that has interacting and overlapping components and variables. So those components are the different pieces in a system that will interact in order to create the system as a whole. So if we're thinking about ecosystems, for example, the components in the system would be the birds, the trees, the animals, the people, as well as the abiotic components as well. So the rocks, the water, the, the soil, all of these different biotic and abiotic components all fit together to create your ecosystem. Now, there are a number of key criteria in order to be considered a complex adaptive system, like I mentioned earlier. One of those key criteria is adaptation, and that's where we get the adaptive part of complex adaptive systems. Adaptation means that there's an adjustment by some entity, uh, some living thing or non-living thing, or the system as a whole, to changing conditions and circumstances. And we've talked about the idea of adaptation before in the context of adaptive systems and adaptive cycles in other episodes of this podcast. Uh, of course, adaptive cycles is a really key component of resilience theory. So listeners should probably, if they've uh, listened to those episodes before, be somewhat mi- uh, somewhat familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see adaptation as a key factor in order to create some kind of a complex adaptive system. The system has to be able to adjust. The components have to be able to adjust to some kind of changing con- uh, conditions, whether that's uh, an external condition or an external change that's being imposed on the system or some kind of internal change that has occurred within the system that the components have to reorganize around. And speaking of organization, self-organization is another key criteria to be in a complex adaptive system. The system components need to be able to create the structure of the system without some kind of external influence. An easy way to conceive of this is if we have uh, some kind of a landscape where humans from outside that ecosystem come in, maybe they build a bunch of buildings or bulldoze the land over for a quarry, what have you, they cause some kind of disturbance. And then they come in and remediate the area to put it back the way it was. Now that disturbance may have fundamentally changed the system. And so these external factors are required in order to keep the system as it was previously, because without that external influence, the system would change into something else. That would not be a a self-organized complex adaptive system because there's there's no sort of organization there, right? The system components on their own need to be able to create the system. Yeah, and they need to be able to adapt. So that's part of what makes this idea different from a complicated computer system. So your iPhone might be complicated and there's things that you know sort of talk and work with one another within the phone but they are not actively adapting and the phone did not sort of spring up out of the organization of wires you know talking to one another and making a phone a human made it it was not self-organized and the individual components of the phone do not have the ability to adapt and change absolutely the the phone itself taken as a system would not be construed as a complex adaptive system. Exactly. Now that situation can be 
text dependent, which we're going to talk about uh, towards the end of the podcast and mm-hmm. in the paper I will be discussing, but stay tuned for that. <laughs> so another key aspect of complex adaptive systems, a uh, key criteria in order to be a CIS is uh, the complex adaptive system has to create emergent phenomena. You need the characteristic of emergence. What this means is that the at least some of the characteristics of the system are uh, the result of these complex interactions of components. And so we wouldn't necessarily expect to find them, but they are re- a result, essentially, of the whole being more than the sum of its parts. Right. Complex adaptive systems can also be either a network or a hierarchical system. What this means is components in a, in a system can be at the same scale and interacting with each other equally, or perhaps uh, interacting with some components in the system and not other components of the system. Or they could be, for example, in a hierarchical system, uh, different components at different scales. And so you see cross-scale interactions as well as uh, between uh, components at the same scale. So these are just some of the key definitions, of course. CIS, CIS as a whole is a field unto itself, as you mentioned earlier, Julie. And there are entire research centers dedicated to uh, complexity research, including the Santa Fe Institute for Complex Systems and the New England Complexity Center. And of course, there's others. So this is an entire field. And we're really just dipping our toes and talking about a little uh, aspects of it as it, mm-hmm. relate, as it relates to resilience theory. Giving you the language. So if you run into this and you're reading on resilience, you're not completely blindsided. You have some tools in your toolbox to understand some of these ideas. Absolutely. And you can find academic papers that talk about complexity and complex systems in a whole variety of different fields. So engineering, mathematics, computing, heck, public public policy, as well as ecology, of course. So it's not restricted to any one particular field. And Particularly in computing and engineering, complexity theory has been around a lot longer than in ecology theory. Mm-hmm. So just to give our listeners some, some examples of what a complex adaptive system might look like, I've got a couple of examples. One is a flock of birds. You might not think of birds as a system unto, unto themselves. You might think of birds in the context of a system like an ecosystem. But a flock of birds itself can be a complex adaptive system, where each bird is an individual agent of the system, the birds operating independently, and yet when they're in flight, each bird is constantly adjusting their position based on uh, the movements of other birds in the flock, weather conditions, the sun, predators, where the places to land are, availability. All of these factors go into each bird's independent movement, and yet those independent movements are also related to the movements of the other birds in space and time. What this creates are those beautiful patterns of birds as they're flowing through and around buildings, flowing through and around in the sky, creating these crazy patterns. We see birds will take off as a flock from one tree, land as a flock on another tree. There are all these different patterns and variables that go into this. And so these birds, each component is adjusting and learning and moving in concert with the other birds in the system. So the relationships between each birds is key for this 
complex adaptive system. Yeah, and I think that uh, the word for this very um, tight aggregate of sort of birds moving as one body, this sort of each individual acting as a part of the whole system, a good way to like Google this, to YouTube this, I believe it's murmuration, starling murmurations, is when the, that, that crazy a sort of flock of thousands of birds moving as one, uh, if anyone would like to see very beautiful visualization of this. And a lot of, that's where a lot of the uh, research in this field has been done on those particular bird movements. Yeah, sure. It's very hypnotic to watch. <laughs> very, very fun. The second of my examples is, uh, surprisingly enough, an orchestra. So where you can think of a flock of birds as perhaps a complex adaptive system in a network where you have all of the components at the same scale, that is the bird. In an orchestra, you can see components at a different scale, at different scales. So some of them are going to be at the same scale, and that is sections of instruments. You have your brass, your strings, and you can break that down into uh, individual instruments. And then you also have the conductor running the show at the top of the hierarchy. There's different components, that is the different instruments, that are doing different things, that is producing different sounds, and they do these things in order to make a whole, that is the concert, whatever it is that you're listening to, the, the music that they're making. And these musicians are constantly adjusting their sound based on feedback from both the conductor and from each other, making it louder or quieter or faster or slower perhaps very sharp sounds that cut off, or maybe slow sounds that gradually decline and become softer. And the conductor is taking different cues from different segments of the orchestra and adjusting on the fly for different instruments as the performance goes along. So again, we see relationships, we see learning, we see adjustment for these complex adaptive systems. Yeah, and this is a good example of the, the sort of phrase that sometimes gets associated with complex adaptive systems, which is the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Because in this case with orchestra, if you were to pull out the sound of the trumpet, the flute, you know, the drums, and listen to those individually by themselves, that is a profoundly different experience than the experience of listening to the piece of music that comes out of all those instruments playing together in an orchestra. And that's sort of another fundamental idea of complex adaptive systems is individual actors on their own, even adding up those interactions is not complex adaptive systems. Those interactions lead to an somewhat unpredictable, larger, greater than the sum of its parts result. And so that's sort of an interesting element that we'll get into a little bit. Absolutely. Well, Julie, hopefully we've created a conceptual foundation right. for talking about complex adaptive systems. So I believe that you have a foundational paper for us on I CAS. I do. And I foundational, it's not too old. This is 1998. Um, and this paper is entitled Ecosystems in the Biosphere as Complex Adaptive Systems by Simon A. Levin. Um, and this paper sort of links the idea of complex adaptive systems to ecosystems, uh, particularly the example they use is when it comes to trying to quantify biodiversity in an ecosystem. So obviously, Connor and I come from kind of an ecology background. We talk about ecology a lot. Figured this would be a nice paper because, as Connor said, a lot of the work in this field did come out of, you know, computer work, um, animation to an extent, engineering, and then was applied to ecology. And so this is a nice place to show how that 
application happened and sort of what some of the thoughts were going into this transition. Sure. Um, and when and part of the reason why they chose quantifying biodiversity as one of the sort of um, problems to which to apply the theories of complex systems is because quantifying biodiversity is difficult because when you uh, you know you you go some ecosystem we'll say a park counting the number of species there doesn't necessarily reflect true biodiversity because you could have one bunny one squirrel one spider one bee and then 500 foxes it's a terrible example, but, but you know, that, that right there suggests you have five species. And if you're just kind of number of species, you're like, all right, for a little park, not too bad. But when you start actually doing sort of uh, richness and evenness, which is, you know, ecology terms for like how many of each species is there and how equal are those numbers, this is not a particularly even distribution of biodiversity in this location. It's one, 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 500. Right. The opposite of even. Which... <laughs> so biodiversity can be a difficult thing to quantify, and that was part of the reason why this was applied here. So this paper sort of starts, ecosystems and indeed the global biosphere are prototypical examples of complex adaptive systems in which macroscopic system properties such as trophic structure, diversity productivity relationships, blah, 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 may feed back to influence the subsequent development of these interactions. Um, so everything in an ecosystem that has the ability to adapt and change. So that's humans, animals, these things are able to go, oh, look, the temperature around me or something has changed. I need to change what I'm doing. And this change that I make, this adaptation, influences everything else in the ecosystem through our connections as a system, creates these feedbacks that contribute to the way that this ecosystem develops and the sort of greater you know, ecosystem services and sum of yeah. the whole of the part. So this paper starts by defining complex type of systems, um, and they sort of start by talking about how difficult it is to define complex type of systems, which is perhaps you listener are getting that vibe from our you know, stumbling trying to do so. They say, it is much harder to find a formal definition as if investigators fear that by defining complex adaptive systems, they will somehow limit a concept that is meant to apply to everything. So this is another good reminder, much like resilience, this is not, scientists didn't, you know, this is not like building a machine. Scientists don't make complex adaptive systems. This is trying to put language to the realities of our world. So resilience tries to describe certain properties of certain systems. This is trying to describe some systems themselves and just a way for us to, you know, work with the world around us. So they say a particularly useful discussion, complex type of systems, may be found in a work by author, uh, Arthur et al. in 1997, who identified six properties that characterize any economy. So this, again, economics is another place uh, where complex systems was sort of formulated. They uh, describe dispersed interaction, the absence of a global controller, cross-cutting hierarchical organization, continual adaptation, perpetual novelty, and far from equilibrium dynamics, mm. sort of flowery language. Um, <laughs> and they go on to say, however, these properties may indeed typify complex adaptive systems. I suggest that the actual definition of a complex adaptive system may take a simpler form, restricted to the basic mechanisms. The study of complex adaptive systems is a study of how complicated structures and patterns of interaction can arise from disorder 
through simple but powerful rules that guide change. These essential elements, he goes on to say, are sustained diversity and individuality of components, localized interactions among these components, and an autonomous process that selects from among those components based on the results of these local interactions. Um, and so individual components, you know, sustained diversity and individual components. The birds, the squirrels, the humans, the foxes, the whatever, different ones acting as individuals. Localized interaction among these components are the way that these individuals interact with one another. And that can take the form of helping one another, eating one another, competing with one another, talking to one another, exchanging information, whatever that may be. And then an autonomous process that selects from among these components based on the results of local interactions. You could, you could go so far as to say that this is evolution. You know, how does competition and natural selection result in ch the changing of these systems? That's one example of sort of a autonomous selection process that they might be describing, but there's many of these. And they say that these properties, the six properties that I described earlier that they thought were a bit too many, they say they all flow from this simpler set um, and that these three sort of rules underlie all complex set of systems. So I think it's nice to break it down to that simplicity. Um, and so they go on to say, examples of complex adaptive systems abound in biology. A developing organism, an individual learning to cope, a maturing ecosystem, and an evolving biosphere all provide cases in point. Natural selection is the prototypical example of an autonomous process, that sort of selection, that third rule, um, referred to in the third property. Artificial selection is not, it's not autonomous because it relies on a global controller. So this sort of specifies, again, that uh, in the case of an ecosystem being a complex adaptive system where you have individual animals and, and humans, you know, making choices, influencing one another, and these sort of overall properties, perhaps ecosystem services of this uh, ecosystem arising out of these interactions, that's sort of, again, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That comes out of the autonomy and the choices that the individuals make and not so much out of like when we get into humans breeding animals and sort of an intensive farming regiment. So they sort right. of take artificial selection out of that. I'm sure at a global level, you could argue that's different because of course, Earth is a complex adaptive system and any cho you know, the choices humans are making within that do affect that system. So, but again, that's where scale comes into play. Absolutely. Scale dependent. And this is where those external factors mm -hmm. disqualify a system from being a complex adaptive system. Right. right? So. Yeah. And there's um, the Stockholm Resilience Center is a, you know, we've talked about them before, big resilience powerhouse globally. And they have some nice uh, YouTube videos describing complex adaptive systems as well. And one of their examples with a very small local system uh, they had the example of, or this is maybe more of a network example, but um, one person has a group of friends at work and a group of friends that they play uh, a sport with. And those two systems are connected by that individual, you know, and, and there's interactions in there, and that even itself could be considered a complex type of system, you know, just a small population of humans. But again, that or ecosystems or the globe just depends what scale you care about. So always define your scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they go on to define uh, a few more basic properties of any complex type of system that they get from uh, John Holland's work in 1995. 
And this is where they start to bring in nonlinearity, which is basically what I've been saying with the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. So they describe these four basic properties of any complex adaptive system to be aggregation, nonlinearity, non diversity, and flows. So aggregation mm -hmm. simply refers to the way that we group individuals into populations, populations into species, species into functional groups, what have you. Uh, so any complex uh, system develops sort of differences in these groupings, and these, this sort of heterogeneity of recognized groups um, leads to some of the populations that we talk about and develops patterns in this sort of complex system. So one way that we might group things might be species. How do bunnies interact with foxes, not just how do individual animals right. interact sure. with each other. So that's another way. And it says, once they arise, these patterns of aggregation, such as the grouping of something into a species, constrains interactions between individuals and thereby profoundly influences the system's further development. The fact that animals evolved into, I like the bunny and foxes example, evolved into that there are bunnies and that there are foxes constrains the way in which those two, even one bunny and one fox as individuals interact with each other. So bunnies are not really capable of eating foxes. Foxes <laughs> are capable of eating bunnies. Therefore, at, even at the individual level, it's more likely that the fox will interact with the bunny by eating it than the bunny eating the fox. Yeah, and that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so there's constraint in the uh, heterogeneity of groupings of aggregations. So the next sort of attribute of these complex adaptive systems, or CASs, is nonlinearity. So because complex adaptive systems change primarily through the reinforcement of chance events, such as mutation, environmental variation, what have you, the potential for de alternate development pathways is enormous. And this concept of nonlinearity is really where, where we're going to tie back into uh, alternative stable states a little bit, because when things happen, like the individual, uh, sorry, the evolution of species, bunnies and foxes, that does put restrictions on the way that these systems interact and the way things happen, right? Like we just described, bunnies will not eat foxes, but foxes will eat bunnies. And so this puts the system on a path dependency in their development. And I like the way they phrase this. They say, frozen accidents of history that resist modification, which I think is quite something. Huh. Yeah. It's very... Uh Poetic. <laughs> yes, which is why I like old papers. This isn't even very old, but just older papers I think are more poetic than the newer ones. So it says path dependency is a consequence of nonlinearity, which refers simply to the fact that the local rules of interaction change as the system evolves and develops. The colonization history of an island or of a patch of or of a patch in a forest will exhibit such path dependency as early recruitment changes the landscape for future potential colonists. So if you have an empty patch of land and particular species chooses to colonize that area. What chooses to be there early or what is able to be there early or what happens to be there early through random stochastic you know, events dictates what happens later. And yeah, so, and it says that what comes along with path dependency is the existence of alternative stable states and ecosystem development and the potential for threshold behavior and qualitative shifts in system dynamics under changing environmental influences. So this is a little confusing and I don't know exactly the best way to interlock these ideas, but basically random stochastic events or individual choices by the sort of individual actors that you know can adapt and change we've been talking about can change the possible future trajectory for the complex adaptive system. 
the butterfly effect, if you will. Doing one thing changes what can happen in the future. And this concept of nonlinearity comes into effect when some of these small changes cascade through like a butterfly effect to become very large changes and might tip an ecosystem or any kind of system from one alternative stable state into another. And that's where, if you haven't listened to that earlier episode, maybe go review alternative stable states as well. <laughs> but nonlinearity is essentially that little things can cause really big unpredictable things, such as a shifting from one alternative stable state to another. And this can be accomplished or caused by interactions between individual adaptable actors. Sure. I wish I had a better way to describe complex adaptive systems, but little, there's a bunch of little actors. They do little things to each other. They make big changes in a system that can be very unpredictable and very sudden. And, and these systems can change through choice, through individual actor choice. And so sort of the third element in this list of four is diversity. And this is where we start to get into an idea that Connor and I will come back to in a later episode, functional redundancy. So the usual place to begin in measuring biodiversity is simply to count the number of species present, but, a measure clearly, but this measure clearly misses the fundamental importance of diversity below as well as above the species level. From the viewpoint of maintenance of ecosystem services, it will matter little that an essential species continues to exist if it has been reduced to a few small and genetically homogenous populations. So some species are more important than others. In sometimes in ecology, you might call this a keystone species, where if you remove this species, there can be a cascading nonlinear, back to nonlinearity, response that leads to local extinction of many other species as well, if many species are depending on this one species. So again, this might be a good example of nonlinearity. You wouldn't think killing one species would really matter that much until you start looking at how it interacts with other individuals and other aggregations, in this case, species, uh, and it can trigger this nonlinear response. Yeah. All about the relationships. All about the relationships. And this also gets into what in this paper they kind of call keystone functional groups, um, which is that there are groups of species that do very important things. So they use the example of groups of microbial species that fix nitrogen. So nitrifiers in the soil, they take atmospheric nitrogen and fix it or change it into a form that plants can use. And that's extraordinarily important ecosystem service. And so there are many species that do that. And so this might sort of bring about the idea of functional redundancy, which as I said, we'll mention more in the future, but basically having many species that can do the same job seems unnecessary, but is actually very important because if something happens to one of those species, if you kill it, you know, hunt it to extinction or, you know, some terrible thing happens or just the ecosystem changes, you still have other species present that can take over that job. And so that's where diversity comes into being an important part of complex depth of systems. In the example from Stockholm Resilience Center, the YouTube video that I was talking about, where there's two friend groups connected by one person in a network, say that that one person in the middle gets in a fight with one of those groups and loses those friends. They're still connected to this other group of people and can that group of people can take over the need for friends in a human's life. You know what I mean? Hmm. So that's an example. Interesting. Sort of, yeah. Hmm. So you don't want to, it's, it's, it's a don't put your eggs in, all, in one basket sort of thing. An ecosystem does not want, <laughs> want, an ecosystem does not want one of its most crucial services to only be done by one species. 
says clearly diversity within a functional group provides some degree of buffering and homeostasis homeostasis for critical ecosystem processes in the same way that diversity within a species provides resiliency and a hedge against extinction. Yeah, very much a resilience concept, right? When very much, yes. Emphasis on redundancy. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and we'll talk about that at length at some point. This is definitely a nice paper because not only does it bring the ideas of complex adaptive systems, which did not necessarily originate in ecology, to ecology, it also brings in resilience, functional redundancy, adaptive, you know, alternative stable states. It's a, it's a grab bag of resilience concepts. <laughs> and so finally, the fourth item in this list that as an attribute of concept, um, sorry, complex adaptive systems is something that they call flows. It says, obviously, any ecosystem is characterized by flows, flows of nutrients and energy, flows of materials, and flows of information. It is such flows that provide the interconnection between parts and the transformation the com- and transform the community from a random collection of species into an integrated whole, an ecosystem which biotic and abiotic parts are interrelated. So, you know, to sort of go back to the beginning, we need aggregations, we need groupings, species, you know, individuals that have something different about them. There's not just one kind of animal. There's many kinds of animals. We need nonlinearity. So the interactions between these individuals can lead to cascading, you know, big time effects. We need diversity within these individuals, within these species, within these animals to make sure that these cascading nonlinear effects don't destroy everyone that can do a certain job for, you know, for a system. Right. And we have flows, <laughs> which flows probably could have been earlier in this list, but describes if you were to look at a complex system as a network diagram with little dots representing individuals and little lines between them representing what connects them, flows are the lines that connects them. Nutrient, energy, eating each other. In the case of humans, maybe information, you know, I give you a piece of information that changes how you adapt because I give you, you have a problem, I give you more information about the problem, you adapt given this new information that I've given you, and now you are changing what you do, and that ripples yeah. out and changes the system. Yeah, so, sure. and it's, it's, again, this is just, humans like to be able to describe what goes on around them. We all exist in complex adaptive systems, and we want simple definitions of what makes a complex adaptive system a system. So, finally, they say that um, the ontogeny of the ecosystem represents a particular form of evolution, which uh, Lowetton, in a paper from 1977, terms transformational evolution, to distinguish it from sort of normal selective evolution, um, in that transformational process, clusters form these aggregations that we talked about, flows become modified, and the system assumes a shape through the process of self-organization. How a system develops is due to the choices that these individual actors and aggregations make even though they are not trying to form this thing. It's, it's, it happens because the actions people take, but not because mm. they go, you know, we're going to make this. The birds in our earlier example are not trying to make a pretty thing. They're trying not to run into one another. <laughs> right, right. So it says autotrophs capture energy, providing a base for the appearance of exploiters, which establish pathways of energy flow that give the system its character. The similarities that exist across systems and the structure of trophic networks represent commonalities that emerge because all ecosystems are complex adaptive systems governed by similar thermodynamic principles and local selection. The differences that may be discriminated represent the role of chance 
spatial variation, and history, magnified through nonlinearity to guide systems down unique developmental pathways. And then they have a section here that I think is a great reminder of scale, and they call this section of the paper From Populations to Ecosystems to, to Gaia. And Gaia is sort of what some people term Earth as a large system, complex type of system. Just a reminder that a single population can be a complex type of system, an ecosystem can be a complex type of system, and Earth itself, Gaia, whatever you want to call it, is a complex type of system. So the key to resilience in any complex type of system is the maintenance of heterogeneity, of diversity, the essential variation that enables adaption and heavily managed systems such as agriculture or forestry are not purely complex adaptive systems in that they're simplified structures that humans have imposed you know, exogenously rather than arising. What a forestry tree farm did not line up in perfect rows because the trees were like, we want to stand in perfect rows. That was a human put on thing. And there might be complex adaptive systems of birds within this tree farm, but it's a more modified system. Um, and so as such, they are fragile, vulnerable to single stresses such as pest outbreaks that can cause system crashes in the absence of adaptive responses, in the absence of a diversity of tree species in this case, or you know whatever else might be there. Thus, if resilience is a goal, managers must understand that properties, uh, the properties that enable an ecosystem as a complex depth of system to maintain its integrity in the face of the changing environmental conditions and human impacts at lower levels rather than being the targets of evolution, makes them no less important as management objectives. Hmm. So manage for resilience because every system you're working with is a complex adaptive system and they need heterogeneity and functional redundancy. <laughs> that's all I got there. <laughs> At least free for ecosystems. <laughs> yeah, free, yeah. Yes, and all of this changes at scale depending on your scale, depending on what you care about, depending on what you're studying, depending on what your question is. So always keep these things in mind. Very true. We're going to get into that here in just a moment here, actually. Great. So what have you found for a more modern paper this week? Well, I thought quite hard about what paper and specifically what sort of a, a genre I wanted mm -hmm. this paper to come from for complex adaptive systems, because a lot of the CIS research is going on in, you know, computer science and engineering. Right. But ultimately, I decided I wanted to basically keep with the theme of ecology for, for this one, particularly because, A, that's the field that I primarily work in, and yeah. uh, B, because I wanted to compare a modern ecology paper on complex mm -hmm. adaptive systems with our, with our older paper with complex adaptive systems. So... I went ahead and went through a paper called Social Ecological Systems as Complex Adaptive Systems, Organizing Principles for Advancing Research Methods and Approaches. And this is by Prizer et al. in 2018. It was published in Ecology and Society. I uh, love Ecology and Society. The authors talk about how the fundamental tenets of social ecological systems research are based on the understanding that linked human and ecological systems are complex adaptive systems. So you were talking about this a bit, Julie, how all ecological systems are fundamentally complex adaptive systems. And we have humans as part of those ecological systems. However, ecological resilience theory research, particularly in the, the late 70s and through the 1980s relied on dynamic systems theory to understand interactions between humans and ecosystems. And it wasn't really 
thought about in the context of humans as part of those ecological systems, at least not on the, the theoretical level that something like complex adaptive systems comp contemplates them on. And a series of academic papers starting in the, the 1990s demonstrated this dynamic systems theory, this traditional approach of viewing systems as inevitably moving towards sort of an equilibrium where we have humans as an external factor that are causing these disruptions and, and creating disturbances didn't, didn't really fit the reality. This led to a, a push for the adoption of complex adaptive systems in terminology and ecology, particular emphasis on the adaptation of these ecosystems as a key system element, which was really lacking in earlier research. Now, to be clear, and we've said this repeatedly, complex adaptive systems has been around for much longer than the 1980s and 1990s, mm -hmm. but this is the first that we're seeing these ideas really become mainstream in ecology as a field. Sure. Now, complex adaptive systems also put, as a theory, also pushed for recognition of the fact that living systems don't typically operate under equilibrium conditions. And I mentioned that uh, briefly earlier. And humans were, were historically viewed as external drivers, right? Or we didn't really think about them as integrated into ecosystems. Mm -hmm. As the authors point out here, we fundamentally have to look at social ecological systems because systems, ecological systems and human systems both adapt and interact with their environments. And so in the case of these purely ecologically driven uh, systems where we see little human influence, even those are still influenced and have to respond to uh, the human influence human field and the same is true of social systems as well no matter how built the environment is right. there's still ecological aspects to that system it's really incorrect to say ecological system <laughs> or social system right it's fundamentally a social ecological system yeah, the absolutely. degree to which that's true you know changes of course after acknowledging all these elements the authors propose six organizing principles for the attributes and features of complex adaptive systems. And their goal is to make it easier for people who are unfamiliar with the field to understand CAS theory. So I'm going to just briefly mention what each of these organizing principles are. So the first is that complex adaptive systems are constituted relationally. What that means is they are defined more by the interactions among their components rather than by the components themselves. And I really liked quote from it, an element of a complex adaptive system is not so much a thing as a process. Interesting. And this goes back, of course, to some of the stuff we've talked about where the whole is more of the sum of its parts yep. and relationships are everything. That's, yeah, if you course, take nothing from this podcast, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts is basically how complex adaptive systems work. <laughs> Absolutely. That's where we get emergence. That's where we get adaptation. Nonlinearity. Non-linearity non <laughs> helps if I can enunciate yeah. too. <laughs> so that's the first one. The second one is that complex adaptive systems have adaptive capacities. That's where we get the adaptive and complex adaptive system. Mm -hmm. CAS adapt over time in response to feedbacks from interactions between system elements and between elements and their environment. Those external influences aren't something we can just cut out. They're 
fundamental to our understanding of complex adaptive systems because complex adaptive systems respond to environmental factors. Your iPhone isn't going to respond per se uh, to being dropped on the floor other than, you know, perhaps shattering or, or breaking the system, right? Sure. A key factor of a complex adaptive system is that it attempts to make adjustments based on those external pressures, external factors. The third key organizing principle that the authors developed was that dynamic processes generate complex adaptive system behavior. So the dynamic interactions in a complex adaptive system and their connections with the environment, again, going back to that idea that there's some inherent connections between the system and its outside environment. Uh, the magnitude of a system's outputs cannot be measured in direct proportionality to the magnitude of its causes. And this gets to that nonlinearity that you were talking about, Julie, where the, the influence, the output is not a directly proportional effect to the inputs, to, to the causes, to what we see going on in the relationships between the components. So the fourth of them, uh, fourth key principle is complex adaptive systems are radically open. I think this is, we've been leading up to this with the other principles, but I think this is a really important point to make. Complex adaptive systems are open systems. Energy, information, and matter are exchanged between the environment and the system. And you talked about this, Julie, in your paper, how, you know, we see flow, flow of energy, flow of information, flow of matter. CAS systems are not closed systems. Fundamentally, they're open to the environment. And we see external factors creating impacts on the system and the system creating impacts on its environment. And that involves an, an exchange of energy, an exchange of information, an exchange of matter, of, of what have you, right? And as a result of this, it can be a little hard to define in fact, it could be a very, very hard to define what exactly the complex adaptive system is. And we've talked about this repeatedly today on the episode, but it's so hard to pin down just what a complex adaptive system is because it's so context dependent. And that's actually the fifth key principle. Complex adaptive systems are contextually determined. CAS have external structures or boundary conditions that are as much a part of the system as the internal structure. So you cannot have the complex adaptive system. It cannot exist without taking into context the external environment. So going back to our orchestra, for example, you need the orchestra itself, but you also need you know, the environment in which the, organis uh, the orchestra exists. Same with the flock of birds. You need the environment in which the, the birds exist because those birds are constantly taking in input from the other birds, they're taking an input from the wind conditions, basically from the environment, right? So you, you need to factor all of these into your assessment of the complex adaptive system. And it also will change depending on things like scale or uh, looking at uh, whether big scales or small scales, or maybe you're looking at a particular part of the adaptive system. Uh, if you change the context, or if you change what it is you're observing as part of the system, the system itself is going to change. And elements in the system may take on a different role or a different function in the system, depending on what scale you're looking at or what aspect of the complex adaptive system you're looking at. And then the last one is 
novel qualities emerge through complex causality. What this means is that cause and effect in complex adaptive systems are not one directional or linear. The system outputs may also function in some cases as inputs. Effects that might seem small might actually have large causes behind them. And then conversely, small causes might wind up creating large effects. And that goes to aspects of non-linearity as well. Finally, the authors assert that there are three key implications from these six, six principles. First is there's a shift in terms of what should be studied in social ecological systems and considered during any framing or analysis of a particular social ecological system. The second is that knowing that the nature of reality is very complex, this has real consequences for how we choose methods, how we choose our practices, our management approaches when we want to observe or study uh, these social ecological systems and the relations, relationships between the different components, uh, both uh, to the environmental aspects as well as the the aspects within the system, as well as between, for example, the, the social components and the ecological components, all of this has are, thing, are things that we have to keep in mind when we're studying these very real but very difficult to pin down social ecological systems and the, the complex adaptive elements of them. Finally, the third implication is that the engagement with social ecological systems as complex adaptive systems poses certain practical and normative challenges. So again, going to back to those challenges and just simply defining what the system is, let alone trying to figure out a, a scientifically sound method for studying them, really causes uh, strong headaches for scientists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's a lot of why complex sort of systems started being studied in the first place, right? It's just because we thought maybe, as we got more and more in scientific knowledge, that we could start to predict how everything happens, right? You know, right. Start, could we model how the climate exactly how it's going to be in a hundred years? Can we, you know, can we take all of our big data, all of our information, all of our big human brains, and figure out exactly what's going to happen tomorrow? And the answer pretty much is no. You know, we can predict some things, absolutely, but not with maybe the degree of certainty in all cases that we would like to as humans, because we live in nested complex adaptive systems that have these non-linearity, you know, sudden transformations, small changes turn into these huge, you know, issues that we didn't know that would arise from these small changes. And that makes everything in reality very complex and very confusing. And it's why we try to study these non-linear dynamics to maybe remedy some of that confusion. Right, 100%, you know, we can, you know, even now we can make pretty good predictions about some aspects of you know, the weather or the environment or, mm -hmm. or what have you, social theory. But at the same time, we have to walk into it knowing that unexpected surprises are the norm, not the exception. Yeah. And so you have to have that flexibility involved. And you have to also know what it is that you are studying. And you have to be aware of the fact that you are studying a particular component or particular piece of the system. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or one system nested in another system nested in another system, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Complex systems are very cool. Go look at Stockholm Resilience Center. Go look at the Santa Fe Institute. Um, 
what some other good places? Go watch some videos on this as well, if this is really where your interest lies. Interacts with network theory, all kinds of good stuff. Very good stuff. Hmm, now let me see. <laughs> Nested systems. Where does that phrase sound familiar? I know. All of our episodes are about to converge into one, just one, one episode. <laughs> well, we'll be addressing Panarchy, which contains adaptive mm -hmm. systems, ne uh, nested adaptive systems, in a future episode. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. Should we move into in the news, Connor? Let's do it. Cool. Uh, my article is about the crab fishing industry uh, in sort of Oregon and Northern California. And the way that I found mm -hmm. this... I was just starting my search and I went to like Google News or whatever and I typed in complex adaptive systems news and this article was the first one and I was like okay so it was labeled as complex adaptive systems it's I think it started probably as a press release from some university research I think Oregon State well I'll dive into this so my article is called the use of ocean resources changes as Dungeness crab fishing industry adapted to climate shock event so basically, there was an unprecedented, oh, and this is by uh, Michelle Clamp of Oregon State University. So an unprecedented marine heat wave that led to a massive harmful algal bloom and the lengthy closure of the West Coast Dungeness crab fishery significantly altered the use of ocean resources across seven California crab fishing communities. So in the 2015-2016 crab fishing season, there was, it, that basically followed the 2014 to 2016 North Pacific marine heat wave, which caused this big algal bloom, which, you know, algal blooms, it says, can produce high levels of this biotoxin, it can accumulate in crabs, and then these crabs can become too dangerous for humans to eat. So mm. there was a weather event, a climate event, and it messed up this crab fishery, uh, which is obviously where many people make their livelihoods. So the event, they, call, they called a climate shock, um, tested the resilience of California's fishing communities, um, as was found by researchers at Oregon State, the University of Washington, the NOAA. Um, and so the study is the first to examine the impacts of such delays across fisheries, this sort of changing of when people can fish and, and you know, closing of the fisheries. Uh, and it provides insight into the response by these affected fishing communities. To preface this, we can think of this fishing community as, at a particular scale, a complex adaptive system. It's made up of individual actors, including the crabs, but also, you know, fishermen, uh, people that process crabs after they're caught, uh, the surrounding community who might rely on some of the economic livelihood from this industry, etc. So when the Dungeness season was delayed, roughly two-thirds of all vessels stopped fishing temporarily, while others switched to different fisheries or moved to more favorable locations. This is an example of that adaptation, right? They changed their actions when you know, faced with new information, new issues in their system, which is pretty neat. So this work is really about understanding how fishing communities adapt to climate change, and they found that the West Coast fisheries are highly adaptive. Generally, they can take a hit, bounce back, they use some of that language, um, although some communities are more resilient than others. The researchers found that 71% of the California Dungeness crab fishing vessels stopped fishing altogether during the season delay. The remainder either moved to locations unaffected by the delay or switched to other types of fishing. Larger vessels were better able to deal with this shock, with this perturbation, 
uh, during the closure because they were able to more easily travel to new locations. Fisheries in Central California were more resilient to the closure in part because they had shorter delays and were generally less dependent on Dungeness crab. They had many different species that they were, you know, fishing for money. So this is sort of an example of, for them, these different species provided a sort of functional redundancy in terms of they didn't, they cared, but it wasn't the end of the world. They weren't able to harvest this one type of crab. They were able to have some flexibility um, and adapt in this particular case. Um, what they're call they said that some vessels in Northern California, in contrast to Central California, were potentially more prone to falling into what they called a gilded trap for Dungeness crab, meaning that they had this commitment to this one particular species of crab for fishing that made it a lot harder for them to adapt if needed to other types of fishing. Complex type of system of a fishery, different actors were able to adapt to different degrees within there and that sort of had ripple effects on the economy. So pretty neat, I thought. It, and it was nice to see, you know, what could have just been a very normal economics article about what happened to this fishery as a result of this climate perturbation, sort of they phrased it in the language of resilience and you know systems in the way that we do as well, which was really nice. They said the most resilient fishermen in the industry leverage strong networks of contacts in different fisheries and have the skills and equipment to fish for different species. They want their business to be resilient, they are adaptable, they leverage their information networks, their connectors to other adaptable uh, individuals in the network and use that to sort of uh, resist the shock. They said they don't know if there's a tipping point into an alternative stable state at which fishing communities can no longer adapt or bounce back. Um, if they get hit again and again by these climate shocks, at what point do they permanently change or do the actors here leave the industry? So I thought that was pretty interesting. Definite resilience yeah. language used in the context of both, oh, and really a social ecological system, because that's, you know, the crab are messed up by the climate shock and the humans are messed up by the climate shock and who can adapt. Yeah, for sure. Oh, super interesting. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So what did you find this week? So my article doesn't really use resilience language, but the topic is uh, resilience in, in complex adaptive systems related. So this article is from uh, The Guardian and talks about how as birth rates fall, animals prowl in our abandoned ghost villages. Oh, neat. <laughs> so we often talk, of course, about, in, in general conversation, about uh, human population. And for a good chunk of the, the latter end of the 20th century, it was all about our exponential growth rate. And like, lately, the conversation has turned to how we see differences in population growth in some areas of the world and population decline in other areas of the world. And... This particular article uh, talks quite a bit about uh, the, the population trends in, in Europe and Asia and how uh, they're seeing dramatic declines in population, particularly in rural areas. This is a combination of the aging populace as well as all of the young people moving towards the cities, of course, mm. so uh, urbanization plays a, a big role in that. But looking to the future, they're expecting to see much uh, with we, as we see falling birth rates, we're going to see significant declines in populations in, in some of these areas. Uh, for example, I, um, research that has been done in on the China, which of course just recently reversed its one-child-per-couple policy. Hmm. Uh, the the result of that implementation implementation is that they're expecting to see match, a massive population decline 
uh, up to an estimated 48% by 2100, which I think is quite staggering to think about. (laughs) But where we see adaptation and complexity in all of this is just through the adjustment of some of these numbers in what would appear on its face to be uh, smaller drops in population Mm. lead to outsized snowball effects. And they also lead to unexpected outcomes. And we see this in particular in in the case of these rural population declines. Uh, We see uh, nature essentially moving back into the space. Uh, This article says that in, in the EU, it's expected that an area the size of Italy is expected to be abandoned by 2030. Goodness. Just that, that's <laughs> nine years from now. Think about that. That's, in, that's a very large uh, portion of Europe. <laughs> the size of Italy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, furthermore, France, Italy, and Romania are among countries showing the largest gains in forest cover in recent years. Hmm. And this is all natural regrowth of what were formerly farm fields. And they expect that this trend will continue until at least 2030. And of course, we'll we'll expect to see other factors influence this, of course. At the same time, we're still trying to feed a growing population, of course. And so, you know, we may see this trend be reversed or change. But a side effect of all of this is that uh, there's been a recent resurgence of large carnivores in Europe. So they're Hmm. seeing a lot more lynxes, uh, wolverines even bears and wolves. Uh, the article points out that in Spain, the Iberian wolf has gone from 400 individuals to more than 2,000, many of which are in these ghost villages, huh. hunting wild boar and deer. <laughs> so, uh, so here we have an example of definitely a cascading unexpected effect. An, a, a young person wants to move from their home, small town, to go to get a job in a big city, and now you have wolves in city centers. <laughs> That's, uh, Um, individual choices have cascading effects. Unexpected outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, it turns into this very, I don't know, I am a legend sort of post-apocalypse vibe. A little bit. (laughs) The paper, uh, just to wrap things up, also mentions that a brown bear was spotted in Galicia, (laughs) Spain, last year for the first time in 150 years. So there's quite a stuff going on in that area. (laughs) All right, that's cool. I like we uh, we went very animal heavy on those news articles this week. Crabs and eh, you know. wolves. Crabs and wolves and bears. And bears. Oh my. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, thank you for listening. We've got a couple more core concept episodes coming up. Got a couple of interviews coming up, so get ready for that excitement. Um, And thank you so much for listening to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway. Take care, everybody. Have a good day. Bye.